This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Holding in mind also, as well as it being Easter Sunday and the anniversary of my mum's death, just holding in our minds the thousands of people around the globe that have lost loved ones recently, um, whether that be as a result of the virus or other diseases around the world. So just holding everyone in mind, I thought it might be an appropriate uh, topic today to discuss the meaning of salvation in the Zen path. Um, and in particular, the kind of uh, um, what I take from my, uh, the teachings that have been handed down to me by my teacher. Um, it's a funny word. Uh, we don't often use the word salvation um, in a uh, in a Buddhist context, but um, a it is, uh, a Buddhism like other religions uh, is known to have a sociological aspect to it. Of the word salvation. And uh, while I was thinking about this talk. Um, I was uh, um, the one. One of my favourite Bob Dylan songs um, is uh, "Shelter from the Storm," and um, that song has a number of verses where he goes through each verse describing different kinds of suffering that the main character is going through, and the refrain on each verse is uh, uh, "Come in," she said. I'll give you shelter from the storm. And uh, in a way, in, in the song itself, that female voice that's offering shelter from the storm, one of the nice things about often about uh, Dylan's work is that it can be interpreted in many different ways. And I think it touches on the two ways in which human beings generally search for salvation. Um, one is through various forms of religion or spirituality, and uh, and one is through relationships. And uh, even the, the 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 common meaning of the of the word salvation um, is to um, a way of being saved from danger or loss or harm. And uh, in, in today's you know, world that often be around disease and death, and uh, we're all familiar with that from our, you know, noble truths of Buddhism, you know, the disease, old age and death. And um, the interesting thing too about the song, Shelter from the Storm, uh, and I think it speaks to the fact that uh, Today, as probably in other times as well, there's always been different 
um, offerings out there on the marketplace of salvation. Um, you go on the internet, and there are all different kinds of uh, uh, products that one can buy into, different beliefs, different practices, uh, different ways of uh, offering some kind of uh, way of being saved from these horrible things that we all have to universally face as human beings. And, um, and I think the song intimates in some ways that we need to tread carefully as to uh, whoever it is that might be offering us shelter. We need to tread carefully around what kind of shelter is being offered. And uh, so many times in our lives, whether it's through religion or spirituality, or indeed through relationships, we've been let down in different ways. And uh, what um, often appeared to be a safe harbour sometimes doesn't turn out to be that way. Indeed, the whole question of whether or not there is such a thing as safety itself um, is another question we can examine uh, from a Zen point of view. But generally speaking, I would say the origins of nearly all religions uh, are about really some kind of uh, salvation from, from death. Even in Neanderthal times, there were probably uh, the, the, the paintings on the caves or the, the stories that were told in those days, uh, the burial uh, traditions, uh, were usually around the notion of some kind of journey after death. Um, so this, this, <clears throat> this is quite universal in human culture. And, uh, but usually in our, in our common everyday experience, um, death is usually something that, which is happening to somebody else. It's happening to them, not to us. Uh, but in these times of heightened anxiety, um, I think many of us have actually been contemplating the possibility that um, well, death may be not that far away. And uh, so what does our Zen practice offer us? What, uh, um, what kind of salvation does, does Zen offer? Um, before I go on to that, though, I'd just like to say a few more words about um, you know, other, other religions and spiritualities. Um, so... Um, I guess in the in the probably one of the universal beliefs is around what you might call a separable soul. Um, so in most of the monotheistic religions and uh, and in, in lots of spiritualities and, and polytheistic religions, um, there seems to be uh, a desire or longing uh, for some kind of ongoing existence after death, and that's usually conceptualized as some kind of soul that continues to exist after death. And, um, and this soul, of course, uh, can find salvation uh, in paradisical heavenly realms, um, or sometimes they, the soul may be punished in some other nastier kind of realm of existence. Probably one of the largest in terms of the head of population belief is in reincarnation, where the soul migrates from one life to another. And um, 
And you can you find this in, in traditional Buddhism as well. So many Buddhists believe in the notion of reincarnation. They don't necessarily ascribe to a separable soul, but they somehow manage to um, get around that one in some different ways, which I won't go into. But, um, so the notion of uh, continuity uh, after death is quite universal uh, in human culture. Um, but the, another, another more subtle and nuanced uh, form of transcendence um, after death uh, is also found in, in different religions and spiritual traditions. And that is some kind of transcendence through um, pure consciousness or pure awareness. Um, some uh, notion of eternity through that kind of conceptualization. It, uh, you find it expressed sometimes in various Buddhist teachings as, a, as the void or emptiness or our true self, uh, which is always uh, eternally here and now. And uh, so when we shed this illusory identity, we basically find our true self. Well, that's another kind of uh, form of transcendence, uh, which I've also found, I've played with and found very, uh, very comforting at times. In fact, none of these uh, uh, beliefs about separate, separable souls or transcendence in various forms. I'm not wanting to, to really criticize or take anybody's beliefs away in that regard. I think often these beliefs are definitely build a form of resilience for people. And, um, you know, and if that works for you um, or that works for other people, who am I to challenge those beliefs? Um, it's difficult enough being a, a human being facing the conditions and the ultimate uh, finitude that we all face. So those, all those different kinds of beliefs can build resilience. Um, but one of the things that attracted me towards the Buddhist tradition and, and the Zen in particular is a kind of healthy kind of skepticism that runs through the tradition. Uh, a certain reliance on reasoning certain reliance on our ability to think about these things and not just blindly believe stuff. And also there's an also an emphasis in, in, in uh, Buddhism and in Zen on the, our experience, on, on, uh, on learning from uh, our experience or what life has to teach us rather than on a set system of doctrines or beliefs or dogmas. And it's interesting that um, in the early various partly scriptures and stuff, the, the Buddha himself um, did not engage in that kind of metaphysical speculation. Um, he may have sometimes uh, played around with those ideas of reincarnation, but most people interpret that as engaging his audience at the time. Um, so speculation about the afterlife was something that the Buddha himself didn't encourage very much. He simply taught the path of suffering and the ending of suffering and the possibility of that happening in this life. So he was always concerned about the ending of suffering in this life, not in any other lives to come, which certainly fits with our teaching in Zen about the only place we can ever be is, is here and now, right? And um, one of the uh, 
classic sort of Pali stories about that is the uh, one that you're probably all familiar with called the Parable of the Poisoned Arrow. And uh, it's basically a story that's told about a monk that was troubled by the Buddha's silence on the 14 unanswerable questions. Now, don't ask me why there's 14 unanswerable questions, but, um, but they included such things as the origins of the universe or life after death, etc., etc. Those kinds of ultimate questions are metaphysical questions. And he tells a story about, um, goes something like this. It's just as if a man were wounded with an arrow thickly smeared with poison. His friends and companions and kinsmen and relatives wanted to provide him with a surgeon, but the man would say, I won't have this arrow removed until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble warrior, a priest, a merchant or a worker. Or he would say things like, I won't have this arrow removed until I know the given name and clan name of the man who wounded me, until I know whether he was tall, medium or short, until I know whether he was dark, ruddy brown or golden colour, until I know his home village, town or city, etc, etc, etc. It goes into all these unnecessary details about the, the bow and the crossbow that fired the arrow. And what kind of, what kind of arrow was it? What was the arrow made of? And the, and, and the, 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 the story goes on and on about all these, these details and, and the, while the man is dying with the poison arrow. And so that was the, uh, the, 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 the Buddha's way and, and, and of saying the man will still die and those things will still be unknown. So the, uh, the question was really for the Buddha, how do we release ourselves from that poison arrow? What can we do to bring about some if not the end of suffering, uh, a way of being able to be with suffering and live a, a, a full, a meaningful and, and joyful life. So it can be argued that uh, Zen um, sought to return to the, the simple teachings of the Buddha and the simple practices of Buddhism, as opposed to the kind of metaphysical, complicated, detailed Buddhism you find in India at that time. So it was returned to simplicity in Zen. But um, so what kind of salvation, if any, does Zen offer? Well, I've, I've basically come, come up with there's, there's lots more than this, but I've come up with two basic metaphors that Zen draws upon and Buddhism in general as well. Metaphors of salvation. And uh, the first one is uh, other reliance, reliance on the other. And, um, and this is, uh, the, the other can be interpreted in different ways, but basically that's captured in the three treasures. So the three treasures being seeking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. So the three, the three treasures or the three refuges or the three shelters that Buddhism offers or Zen offers in that teaching. And so in that kind of teaching, those three but shelters or refuges are awakening. So Buddha means the awakened one. The other one is Dharma, which is basically either teachings about reality or reality itself. And the third one being the Sangha or the community of practitioners or relationships. So, um, and all three are interconnected, interdependent, all three need each other. 
And um, the other um, metaphor that I've come up with is uh, in Buddhism and Zen is self-reliance. And um, so you find this primarily in one of the last discourses he gave before he died, the quite famous one where he talks about, you know, be an island unto yourself or be a lamp unto yourself. Uh, in other words, don't trust any authorities. Um, allow the light of your own wisdom to guide you. Allow life to teach you. And, uh, and with that comes the sense of uh, uh, reliance of se on self. Because um, in some ways, uh, we've got to be careful about you know, relying on beliefs or even relying on relationships sometimes because the rug can always be pulled out from us. Now, the interesting thing, I think, is that um, these are not really contrasting shelters or contrasting options. Um, I think, uh, when you think about it, uh, other reliance and self-reliance are actually mutually interdependent as well. So the sense in which we are able, like in our own lifetimes, if, if we take relationships um, in terms of other reliance, you know, starting with our parents, our friends, uh, our teachers, our partners, you know, we are, we are the product of all those relationships. And the extent to which um, we are able to move to a form of self-reliance is really dependent upon those previous conditions. You know, the whole notion of Buddhism is everything arises from conditions. And the conditions need to be laid down from birth onwards to enable us to even sit here in Zazen for 25 minutes. Not everybody's able to do that. We are basically reaping the fruit of all the different relationships we've all experienced. People who have loved us and cared for us, people who have inspired us, people who we have idealized. Um, people who we have shared intimacy with. And yes, sometimes these relationships may have been the source of heartbreak, but often we come through heartbreak when we meet someone else and uh, we share in the, the sense of our hearts connecting again. So there's a whole history of relationships and uh, that allow us to move to uh, self-reliance. It's not something that we can take for granted. And in the same way, self-reliance, indeed, um, for us to be able to uh, be there with others, to provide um, empathy for, for others, requires us to be able to be pretty clear on our boundaries and so forth. So for us to enter into relationships and uh, to enter into community also assumes some basic a sense of mature selfhood and, and ability to... To, to, to enter into relationships in a non-harming, non-threatening and supportive way. So both of those two things come together in Buddhism, the, the sense of the, the need for relationships and community, um, but also the need for uh, self-reliance through Zazen practice. And uh, they're always interdependent and always richly uh, enriching our lives. And, uh, and finally, um, because I come from a particular school of Zen, which draws upon uh, a psychological understanding and psychotherapy, 
I'm, I'm always influenced by contemporary psychological developmental theory, which basically teaches us that um, from the get-go, we are relational beings. Um, and what we take as most personal, you know, what we take as most intimate, ourself, is something which arises in the in-between. And so it's, the, it, it's not something which can be separated off from relationships. And uh, so from that kind of perspective, our personal self can't be understood as a separate soul because it's something which arises in the in-between. It's not something that can be pinned down. It's not something which has an inherent existence independent of everything else. Like everything in the, in the, in the Buddhist cosmos, everything is interconnected and there is no separate inherent self-existing thing. It's all one vast web of interconnection. And we are part of that. And in order to nurture ourselves, we enter into nurturing relationships. And hopefully we develop the wisdom and the compassion to be able to do that and to help others do that. So from that kind of perspective, it doesn't make any sense in Buddhism to talk about individual salvation. And this has been the, what was referred to in Mahayana Buddhism as the Bodhisattva path. Um, and the, one of the first vows we recite in Zen Buddhism is, beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. So, in some, so from really from a Zen perspective or a Mahayana Buddhist perspective, we're either we're all damned or we're all saved. And we're all in the same boat together. And um, so, um, so finally, what is it that we awake to in Zen? Well, we, we awake to this moment. We awake to the reality of impermanence, the reality of interdependence, and that we can never be separate from that. We can never transcend or cut ourselves off from that. And we awake to always being here in, that, in this moment, experiencing that change. We abide or we reside in the process of impermanence and interdependence. And uh, in order to um, uh, continue the, the practice of awakening, we join with others. So we, we, we seek to create a culture of awakening. That's our sangha, that's our community, a culture of awakening. So we want, in salvation, if you like, in Zen, is saying yes to life. But yes to life as a whole. We can't just say yes to little bits of life and no to other bits. We either swallow it whole or we don't swallow it at all. So in conclusion, um, I'd just like to say, Zen does not promise us salvation by means of an escape from disease, old age and death whether that be by transcending death, by being reborn into a Buddhist paradise, or by realizing our true nature as the unborn and undying spirit. After over 30 years of engaging in this practice, I would say that the salvation that Zen offers is simply an embrace of disease, old age and death. The path of salvation in Zen is simply to live mindfully, knowing our time on this earth is limited. This doesn't mean we have to convert to a religion. It just means we must live our lives, as my teacher recently said, as is everything matters. Every person, every moment, every being counts. From the time we get out of bed in the morning to the time we go to bed at night.